Good evening, church. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Today is Good Friday. I'm sure you know that because you're here at a Good Friday service. Um, you know, it is good, as one writer put it, I saw this this week on, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> um, most things I see on Twitter are not worth saying in sermons, but uh, this was, um, one writer says um, that Good Friday is good because the crucifixion uh, is not a defeat overturned by the resurrection, the crucifixion is a victory revealed by the resurrection. And it might seem outrageously self-centered to think that Jesus' death on the cross, to think of Jesus' death on the cross as being good. How can the humiliation, torture, and death of a human being, and Jesus was a human being, be considered good? Even if good things came out of it for you and me, for far too much of Christian history, the church has fallen for an individualist gospel that offers the good news that because Jesus died on the cross, you can go to heaven when you die. That may be true, but it's like a baseball player bragging about winning a game even though it was another player that hit the winning grand slam. Jesus' work on the cross was the once and for all cosmic victory over sin, death, and evil. Yes, that does lead to good news for you and I, but our personal salvation, personal salvation is only the beginning. The, the victory revealed by the resurrection invites each of us into an abundant life of freedom in Christ, but we have no business celebrating Easter Sunday without first kneeling before the cross on Good Friday. At the cross, we learn that our lives were bought at a price. At the cross, we die to our selfish agendas of individual ambition and prosperity and join the new creation movement of cruciform love. At the cross, we, we die to self and we live for God. So we, we turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. I'd like for us to do kind of a little Bible study here this evening. 2 Corinthians is actually probably more like 4 Corinthians, by the way. Some scholars actually believe that, that what we see in the book is actually two or, three, two or three letters by the Apostle Paul written about 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. The, the first section of the letter is chapters 1 through 7. So if you were going to read through it, you'll notice that when you're reading 2 Corinthians, that Paul is like he's speaking about some sort of painful trial that the church had been through. In this letter, we're only kind of hearing one side of the, of the telephone conversation, but it's clear that Paul is writing from this place of deep emotion. And I want us to walk through one particular section, which is commonly referred to as the Ministry of Reconciliation. We'll look at the first half this evening, and then we're going to look at the second half on Sunday. But the basic idea is that Paul passionately desires that the love shown by Christ on the cross might be made manifest in the church at Corinth. 
might be embodied by the church at Corinth. And may his words to the church there be our word, be words for us this evening. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, Paul says that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The, the judgment seat of the Roman governor was one of the distinguishing features of the city of Corinth. It was a very public way of dispensing justice and letting everybody know who was in charge. So Paul is, is drawing on that image to discuss the, the judgment seat of Christ. The, the, the interesting thing is that the word appear, it means to be laid bare, to be fully exposed, to be stripped of any superficial outward facade and be openly revealed in the full and true reality of one's character. Those things about us that are hypocritical, when we did one thing and when we said one thing and we did another, or the things about us which are hypercritical, when we refuse to give grace and mercy and instead opted for judgment for a cutting remark. Those things that we have concealed, the things that we have kept from the light of day, our deepest, darkest secrets, and the most intimate sins of our lives, the most intimate sins of thought and deed will one day be exposed and openly revealed before the judgment seat of the only one worthy to judge us. He is the one with the authority to judge because He is the author of life itself. So the, the basic question will be to what extent have we lived into that foundational mission of life that we talked about uh, back with Noah a few weeks ago. That foundational mission of life is be fruitful and multiply. Have we done that? Have we participated in God's ongoing mission of life or instead have we opted for a path of of destruction and selfish desire? Have we, have we taken the, the road that we wanted to take rather than the one that God laid out for us? As it says in Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I'm a Christian. I'm going to be just fine on that day. And that is true. Because Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But with great power comes great responsibility. The saving love offered to you by God in Jesus Christ is offered by grace alone through faith. The thing is, faith looks like something. As James, uh, Jesus' own brother, once said, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The point is this. For the Christian, the cross 
must not be used as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Isn't this great that Christ died for me and I can now do whatever I want? No, the cross for the Christian is a stimulus. It's the ultimate model of love that compels us to love others and continue that ongoing mission of life. So when you read about the coming judgment, and the first thing you think of is Jesus, good. That is the only name under heaven by which human beings might be saved. My question for you this evening is, as you kneel before the cross, am I living a life of one who has tasted of that saving love of Christ? Or am I fighting to get back into the cage from which, from which He has already set me free? Paul continues, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We want to get this word out, the word of the good news. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. There's times I like the ESV, and times I also think it's like unnecessarily dense, and this kind of feels like the latter to me. Basically, Paul is saying that the love of Christ and the knowledge that we will all be held accountable, laid bare and held accountable for how we live, drives him and, and his companions to, to persuade anyone who will listen to give their lives to God. And Paul wants to be authentic. He wants to be genuine. He wants to be seen as genuine. He knows God is the judge, but he also hopes that his integrity, he hopes that, that the true reality of his heart is going to be clear to the people that he's ministering to. He's not interested in bragging about superficial matters. He actually wants to help them understand that the way of the cross is the only true way to live. As it says in 1 Samuel for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So there it is again. Integrity. Again and again throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus, Paul, and others shining the light on the heart, especially when it comes to how we serve others, how we love others, how we relate to other human beings. The cross was the ultimate example of genuine, sacrificial love. So when Paul says that knowing the fear of the Lord, he attempts to persuade others, he isn't doing it for the money. He isn't doing it for the fame. He isn't doing it for power. He is 100% sold out to the saving love of God shown to humanity on the cross, and he is utterly committed to use any means necessary to genuinely communicate the gospel of Christ to the world. He says, verse 13, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for who for the sake died and was raised. Who for their sake died and was raised. A few months ago, I used a Star Trek analogy in a sermon about truth. There are four lights. 
You call me a nerd, but it wasn't a gimmick. I actually really love that episode, and it was actually, in fact, a serious reminder that as a follower of Christ, I'm called to be a man of truth, even if it costs me something. As a follower of Jesus, I believe that He is Lord. So if I act strange sometimes, if I use odd references to movies or song after song after song, is why does He keep bringing up songs that we don't know? It's sometimes, that sometimes land and sometimes don't, maybe most of the time don't. If, if I do these things, I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it because I'm trying to communicate. I'm trying to capture onto something that's real. I'm trying to capture onto, I'm trying to connect to emotions that are real. And do that for God, saying something about how God is relating to the, to the men and women of this congregation. And on the other hand, if I'm serious and I'm in my right mind, and I'm, and I'm saying ominous things about humanity appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, and I ask you to consider the state of your faith tonight. It is because I genuinely care about you. I am grateful for the paycheck, friends, but I am here because I love you all and because I am 100% sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I could say I was 100% sold out, but I'm trying. I'm here because I genuinely believe that kneeling at the cross is what is best for your life. It's what's best for your career. It's what's best for your dating life. It's what's best for your marriage. It's what's best for your kids. It's what's best for your school. It's what's best for your bank account, for your resume, for your vacation plans. You see, I believe that, that to first kneel at the cross, accepting God's offer of grace in Christ and submitting your life to His will and dedicating your future to His capable hands, kneeling at the cross was going to give you the best possible reason to stand up. The great Pat Goodman once said that there's something worse than dying. It's not knowing why you're living. You see, it might seem counterintuitive, but kneeling at the cross offers the greatest perspective that a human being can have because it, because it submits to my agenda uh, be, um, for how the world, because if, if I'm submitting to my agenda for how the world should work, that's not going to take me very far. Kneeling at the cross surrenders to God's will. And what do we know about God's will for creation? Well, we know that He cared for it. He created it. We know that He, he laments over the ways it is broken. We know that He has put in place a plan of redemption for it. And we know that He has a future for it. And we are a part of that. All of us are invited to be a part of that. But first, before we taste the new creation, before we taste of the resurrection of Easter Sunday, we have to kneel before the cross of Good Friday. Because if we don't, we will continue to place ourselves on the throne. And I don't know about you, but I don't have what it takes to be your king. And I certainly don't have what it takes to be God. Revelation puts it this way, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Who is Jesus to judge you? He's the only one worthy of the job. 
The thing we often forget about judgment, though, is that it's a very, very good thing. You might have cringed a little bit when I talked about all of us appearing vulnerable, exposed before the judgment seat of Christ, but knowing the fear of the Lord, it makes sense that that being judged by God would sound terrible, and it is. But in Christ, we're not just forgiven We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of our sins will be exposed, and everything that is in opposition to God's holy character will be clearly identified, and on the other side of judgment, we will find that in Christ, we are new creation, free to live a life of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, not because we're bound by religious rules, but because we have new life, because God has set us free to be the people He created us to be, to be people created in His image, but even more so. The full consummation of that reality, it's not going to be realized this side of eternity. But, but the invitation of Holy Week The invitation of Good Friday plus Easter Sunday is that we are started to live, we are invited to start living that life, that new creation life right now. Christianity is not about what will happen to you one day when you, so you get to go to heaven when you die. It's about the kingdom of God, living the life of the kingdom of God right now, today, for our real world. You were made for, for living a life of passion. A life of conviction, a life of purpose. Find your purpose in Christ. In Christ, we discover who we are. Kneeling at the foot of the cross, we discover who we really are. But we have to start by kneeling at the cross. We can't just decide to do it by our own will and by our own might. At the cross, we say along with Jesus, Thy will be done. Let me say it again. Crucifixion is not a defeat overturned by the resurrection. Crucifixion is a victory revealed by the resurrection. Paul put it this way in Romans 6, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life, the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive, alive to God in Christ Jesus. A few minutes, the worship team is going to come back up. We're going to to take communion in a few moments. For the first time since uh, November, I think. If you're watching online... I would encourage you to partake with elements of your choice. If you happen to have bread and wine, great. If not, feel free to use whatever you have. For those of us in the room, hopefully you're able to pick up the little prepackaged communion cup. If not, you can go in the back on the table when um, 
when the, when the worship team starts playing the song. Um, after the song, we'll partake together as a family. But before that, as the song plays, I want to ask you to consider, I want you to have a few minutes to consider where you are with God this evening. Think about that question Jesus asked Peter, asked his disciples, who, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? Not who does my parents think that Jesus is, not who do my kids think Jesus is, like who, who do you think Jesus is? And have you ever knelt before the foot of the cross and given your life and surrendered your life to him? And if not, I'd consider it, if tonight is that night for you, the night that you accept God's offer of free grace, kneeling before the cross, saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Confessing your sins, surrendering, surrendering your will, and trusting his will. Are you ready to receive that gift this evening? I just would encourage you to do that business internally as the band plays. If there's any baggage, any baggage at all that you're carrying right now that, that needs to be put down, you, you, you feel like maybe you walk through those doors and, and you had things on your shoulders that just, you, you're carrying it. And, and maybe it's a sin, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's just bitterness, maybe it's just anger at something. If that is you, Jesus' message for you this evening is simple. You don't have to carry that anymore. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Is there something that's in your past that, that, that's making you question God's love for you? Something that you've been afraid will be exposed? Something that, that, oh gosh, if I was to appear naked and vulnerable before God, that thing would be now exposed. Maybe it's something that's painful. Maybe it's something that's embarrassing or shameful. But here's the thing, folks. There is a lie out there that, that, that is telling you that you, you need to keep that pain pushed down as deep as you can because if the world found out about it, you'd be in serious trouble. The truth is, though, Jesus died for all because all of us were in need of it. All of us are in need of a Savior. And the ground at the foot of the cross? Level. The reason why Good Friday is good is because it's a day that we find out that God loves us to death. <laughs>